Well, good morning. I'm glad to be back at Calvary. Um, and uh, since you have mission theme out and you have missionary in a pulpit, then what do you think the to- topic is going to be? Uh, no, it's, a, it's a great honor and a privilege to be back, and, and I'm excited to share God's Word with you. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. Those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Anthony Valhalla. Uh, and we, my wife and I, and the kiddos, we are missionaries to the Czech Republic. If you want to hear more about it, you have to ask me later. Uh, I also had the privilege to, to, uh, to be interim pastor here a while back, what, 50 years ago or something like that. And uh, so there is a great connection that, that I have to this church. Yeah, and uh, to share you, give you a quick story, and the story kind of ties into our text today. Because it is the outcome of what we are going to consider this morning. Uh, and it's because a week, week or so ago, I met up with a farmer. He's a dairy farmer, also has a chicken farm. And uh, as we were speaking, he, he invited me because he wanted to be part of the work we were doing in the Czech Republic. Uh, he handed me a check with, which had three zeros, which is, uh, that's pretty big. It was half of his uh, coop. Uh, revenue and uh, and so seeing check like this seeing that he's going to play a significant part in our ministry uh, in this way I ask him you know what why are you given this and he said to me you know I do tithe I do all these things with the local church but uh, when I took this money and as a farmer he was in the process of uh, I think he was shelling corn right, uh, and preparing stuff for silage. He says, you know, I could take this money and I could make my life easier. In fact, I can always take more money and to make my life more easier. And those guys work hard. But at the end of my life, when I would look at it, all that money would not count for the kingdom. And I want my money to count for the kingdom. I want to look back and say, okay... This money will be worth something billion years from now because it was invested in the kingdom of God. Now, what gives him mind like that? What makes us think differently? Well, let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Shane has read it for us. And so what I will do... I will pray for us. And we will go into our text. Let me begin our reading, our prayer with this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out, of, out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them around about, and behold, there, was, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. God, we do pray now, as we are often as these bones, dry and empty, that the breath of your Holy Spirit, who is powerful, who comes to us as a helper, 
who comes to us as the one who seals us for the divine and ultimate redemption would come and make us alive open our ears open our eyes to hear your word and mold us god make that heart that you've given us a soft pliable heart make it conform to your will so that we are most satisfied in you god we need to hear from you we are desperate people and our life does not consist of bread alone but every word that comes from your presence and so we ask you that you would speak through me through your word that you would cut into the depths of our soul into the bone and marrow of our being so that our sins would be revealed and your holy spirit can apply the remedy of the cross to the very soul god we need you this morning to speak to us because otherwise this would have no point whatsoever. We want to hear from you, God, in, Je- in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as, as Shane already read for us, we'll focus specifically on verses 5 and 6. And my first question would be, what is the gospel? And you can tell me back, what is the gospel? You would say gospel is the good news. As, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talked about the gospel that I have received and I'm sharing it with you. And it was very plain. Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried and he was raised according to scripture. That is the gospel. Now the second question is, what do we do with the gospel? What do we do with it? Honduras. Czech Republic. What do we do with it? We take it. We take it somewhere. We share it. So we know those two things. We know what the gospel is, even though sometimes it's, it's shaky and we have to continually come back to it because we forget often. We know what to do with the gospel, namely share it with the lost. But the question becomes why? Why do we share the gospel? Now, the often answer that you get is because God tells us to do so. After all, great commission, go you make, make disciples of all nations. We stress the idea of obedience being the reason why we go share the gospel. Isn't that true? That's what you hear at seminaries often. That's what you hear at churches. Obey, preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you this past week have shared the gospel with someone? How many of you have obeyed? See, I can simply just close the service now and we all can come down because we are all guilty. We blow it all the time. We don't tell people about Jesus. And just play a good old pastoral guilt trip on you because, you know, pastors are really good at condemning and and laying guilt And some of you would feel guilty. Most of us would come down here, repent, and then we would go home and resolve that we're going to share the gospel. Maybe we'll pray for our waitress at the restaurant. And when we go on Facebook, we click Jesus page that we like it, you know, or put some very daring verse on our Twitter or something like that. And 
maybe buy another fish to put on back of your car and oh we are evangelistic we're you know we're really sharing Jesus well a month later we might get together again and I ask the same question or pastor Brendan will ask the same question and we might have the same thing happen and the reason I think it's happening like this because we have lost the very foundation of our gospel sharing if you look through the New Testament, you will not find an instance where, where sharing gospel is a matter of obedience in the sense of disobedient people are supposed to obey and share the gospel. You never find a text in which Paul or anybody else has to tell the people, listen, you're not sharing the gospel. You need to share the gospel. Have you ever read anything like that? You beat them up because they preach Jesus and they go somewhere else and they keep preaching Jesus. That's what you see in the scripture. And so my aim is to find out why is it like that. Because what we find in our verse, especially verses 5 and 6, we find the foundation of the gospel proclamation. And now I might have it on the screen. Notice there, in verses 5, Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus... As Lord and ourselves as bond servants. So Paul is saying, we do not preach ourselves, we preach Jesus. That's our topic, that's who we preach. We don't preach just a thing, we preach a person, Jesus Christ. But what is the foundation? The foundation is something else besides just simple will, obedience. Verse 6, the the word for tells us the very foundation of Paul's Reason for preaching Christ. And there it is. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to do what? To give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So for Paul, it's not necessarily obedience, though obedience is part of Christian life, but there is something beneath this obedience that drives Paul, and that's what we're after. And to put it simply, and just to give away the main point here, is this. The true ruth of sharing the gospel with the lost is not a duty unto God, but delight in the glory of Christ. And so this morning we'll have twofold tasks. We'll need to kind of meditate and understand the glory of God in the face of Christ and what really takes place in verse 5 and verse 6 especially. But then, take the text and turn it on ourselves. And so, let's do this. I want you to look back in your Bible in verse 4. And notice what it says there. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now notice this sounds very similar to the verse right above it, I mean beneath it, verse 6. Where we read, God said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now I want you to notice these parallels. You have the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is an image of God and then you have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so you see in verse 4 and verse 6 there are parallels. There's the light, parallels with the light of verse 6. 
that the knowledge parallels the gospel. And then you have the glory of God and glory of Christ. And so as you begin to look at these, you begin to notice these are in the sense of stages of salvation. What really transpires as we come to Christ. And the first, the ultimate stage is the glory of God. That's what it's all about. The ultimate stage is when we arrive in heaven after we have trusted Christ and see Christ Himself, the glory of God. And there is nothing beyond that. You do not arrive in heaven, fall before Jesus, and then start looking around, what else is here? What better thing is here for me to do? No. The glory of God, Christ, is the ultimate stage. That's the ultimate thing of salvation. But then you have the mediatory stage, and that's the, the, the gospel, or in verse 6, is the knowledge. This is essentially the revelation of God in Christ who came as a babe in a manger so that He would live a sinless life, go to the cross, die on the cross, be buried and raised from the grave, and then ascend to the right hand of the Father. This stage unlocks the door essentially to the ultimate stage, the glory of God. But it also, as you notice, there is this mentioning of light, the light. There's the necessity of light. There's the necessity of God shining a light into a darkened soul. And so that's the initial stage of the gospel that, that when people actually hear the gospel, they look at it and embrace it rather than just ignore it or are being complacent to it. And so we're going to take these few apart little by little. Now the ultimate stage, the glory of God, it often happens and helps to us uh, as we try to figure out what glory of God is to, to kind of look at it like theologians do and separate it from God's holiness. God's holiness is something that only God possesses. It makes Him unique, separate from others. Uh, completely unmatched in His holiness, in His perfection, in His being. You do not have any other category. Nobody else is in a category with God. God is in a category of his own. And so that's the essence of holiness. It's difficult for us to grasp. And so the way we can understand his holiness is just kind of look at how it plays out. And that's what we talk when we talk about the glory of God. If you were to think of holiness as the white hot sun in the sky, then the, then the rays would be the glory of God, the visible manifestation of something that you cannot approach with your eyes. And so that's the manifestation of God's glory, how His holiness is played out in His virtues, in His work through Jesus Christ, in His creation. All these things that God is doing are displaying His glory, and that glory points to who He is in His character. Now, often these things to us sound like skeleton, and so it helps to put some meat on a bone. And so let's suppose we were to go to David and ask him, David, of all the things that you as a king would desire, what is the greatest thing that you want? And if you remember King David, he was not exactly a poor fellow. Uh, he was the Bill Gates. He had, the, he had a palace. He had a vast nation. He had people paying him homage. But when you ask David, what is that he desires, 
he says this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. The richest man, aside from his son Solomon, saying, my greatest desire is not this wealth. My greatest desire to behold the beauty of the Lord. John tells us that God is the most lovely being. In fact, John says that God is love. The angels in Isaiah 6 have to cover their faces in the presence of this holy God. And all they can do is just proclaim, holy, holy, holy. Later we read in in one of the Psalms when David says about God that He's the source of the fullness of joy and pleasures that never cease. If you were to ask somebody on the street how much joy do you want or how much pleasure you want, nobody would tell you, oh, just a little bit. Everybody would tell you, I want fullness. I want complete satisfaction. And David says, that is found at the right hand of God. Nowhere else. You ask Job, and he says to you, God, in final analysis, I know you can do all things. You are powerful. My, I've heard of you. Been hearing of my ears, but now I, my eyes have seen you, and I retract and I repent in the dust and ashes. When Job was confronted with the power of God, he became speechless and repentant sinner. And in 2 Samuel we read, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. God is amazing. But if you want to even closer look at this God, where do we go? Our text tells us it's to the face of Christ. The glory of God is displayed in the face of Christ. He is the image, as Paul tells us, of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And when Philip came to Jesus and said, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say to Philip? Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so in Christ we find these manifold beauties of God, the richness of His character that are often so puzzling to us. But there is nothing more excellent and more beautiful than Christ Himself. He is the mighty lion who pounces on His enemies while at the same time He's the dying lamb who spreads His arms for His enemies and dies for Him. He's the Lord of lords, ruler of all, yet what does He do? He becomes a suffering servant to redeem us. He's a king of kings, the rightful heir of the universe, but he becomes poor so that you and I might become rich. He's God, the Alpha and the Omega, but he also became the man so that he can redeem us. And he's a savior who is dead. But what does he tell John in the book of Revelation? Behold, I am alive forevermore. He's the ultimate and most glorious of all things. The glory of Christ is so amazing that when Moses was faced with the decision of, am I going to become the prince of Egypt and enjoy immense wealth? He says, I don't care because I consider reproach of Christ greater riches than all of Egypt. Same word considered. Paul uses it later in Philippians 3 when he says, I consider all things but loss 
for surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ. I mean, the point is obvious. There is nothing that can be compared to Jesus. At the same time, we have to step back and think about this. How well did Moses and Paul see him? And if you look back in chapter 3, we find that we see dimly as in the mirror. And even as dimly as these men saw the glory of God, it was more valuable to them than their own life. For, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As Paul tells us. And the question then becomes, is this how we see Christ? See, our culture has duped us into see something as more valuable than Christ. We often call it the American dream. The anti-gospel. The beautiful house. Nice car. If you're from the country, it ought to be a nice truck. Of course, you better have a good job, a great career. But suppose we ask God, God, reveal to us what this looks like in correspondence to reality of your glory. Give us a glimpse of what it looks like if we were to compare this to who you are. And this is the reality. Lego house. Monopoly money. Matchbox toys. This is a picture of what it looks like in sight of God to value, to value things like American dream above Christ. Who in here is willing to die for that? I'm not. It's worthless. There's nothing wrong with a good, nice house. There's nothing wrong with a nice car. There's nothing wrong with a good job. But if that is your ultimate joy, if that is your ultimate glory, then you worship in the Legoland. Because salvation is ultimately about us being joined to Christ. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died, the just for the unjust, so that He might do what? That He might bring us to God. And so the ultimate stage is that we come, we behold the beauty of Christ, and that is our greatest joy, because it is the greatest joy. We don't make it the greatest joy. We realize that is the greatest joy. That is the fight before us every day. But here's a problem. And that requires stage two, the intermediate stage. We have a righteousness problem. God said to Moses in Exodus, You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. In fact... If we were to be faced with the holiness of God, we would be instantly destroyed. And so we have an issue. We have a righteousness problem. Or specifically, we have a problem of not having righteousness. And God in His holiness, He is not going to tolerate it. And so we read in 1 
chapter of Romans Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so that's our plague, that's our problem. We suppress the truth. We are unrighteous. But if you just flip a few pages forward to Romans 3, we find what? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been what? Revealed. God, while He's pouring His wrath out against all unrighteousness, He is at the same time through Christ doing what? He is providing the necessary righteousness that we need so we can stand in His holy presence. Because this righteousness that's been revealed or manifested is witnessed by the laws and the prophets, even righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the picture is very clear. God made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The great exchange, as it used to be, is always called. The great exchange in which God removes His wrath from us, puts it on Christ, and not only that, expiate His anger, but also Christ's righteousness that He has gained through His perfect life is given to us. It is as if a divine banker were to look at you and say, let me see your account. And you're broke. In fact, you're worse than broke. If you had the ability to live for billions and billions of years and be able to pay $1 million each day, you still way too broke to pay off the amount of debt you owe to this holy God. And he says, you deserve death for that sort of debt. But here comes Christ, the King of kings, who comes down and says, I'll pay the debt. But he doesn't do just that. He takes and writes a blank check and deposits it into a real account. That is the gospel. But there is another problem. See, we can preach our hearts out for this gospel to, to penetrate, but the people we talk to are dead. We have a deadness problem. Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned away. And the natural man, he doesn't accept things of the God, of the Spirit of, of God, but to them he's their foolishness. And so what we do, rather than embracing the glory of God, what we do, we in fact exchange it for idols. As Paul tells us, we, prof we have professed ourselves wise and foolishly have exchanged the glory of God for incorruptible things. And so while we may preach, preach the gospel, we need something more so that people who hear the gospel look at it and say, this is the greatest news that this universe has ever heard. See, because sinners do not mind if you talk to them about heaven and hell. They, in fact, don't even mind to sign up to go to heaven if heaven means... I don't have to be sick anymore. All my friends might be there. I get to play golf forever or go fish forever. 
See, but these things do not require transformation of your heart. You ask any person on the streets if they want to be in a place where there is no suffering, when there is perpetual joy, and they get to do whatever they want. Nobody will say, no, thank you, I do not like that. But heaven is not about that primarily. Heaven is about having Christ, being in the presence of Christ. And so, if you tell them, do you want Jesus? Do you want to know Christ? Do you know, want to know the Creator of the universe in such a way that you'll be f- never dissatisfied, always have joy and fullness of it? They would say, no, I don't want that. I have other things that I like better. Because the natural man will not look at the gospel and say, yes, that's what I want. Natural man will always run away from the gospel. And so it requires the initial stage. And in the initial stage we read, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. The picture Paul wants us to have in mind is a picture of a dark soul that is separated from God. That is as void of the presence of God and the light of God as the creation was in the very beginning when there was nothing. Paul wants us to look at the soul of man who doesn't know Christ and see desolation and emptiness. And the change that has to happen is when God comes and creates. And the understanding here of the creation is this. At creation... How much was there for God to create out of? Nothing. There was nothing at the creation that put itself at God's disposal so He can create something. Same way in our hearts. There is nothing in our hearts that we can give to God for His disposal so that He can create something out of it. In fact, I would argue that it's, it's a lot harder for God to create a pure heart, transform heart than to do creation because creation wasn't there and didn't fight back. We fight back. Our sin is what we bring to God. And out of that, He creates light. He infuses light into the soul that the soul is transformed and sees the gospel and says, that's what I want. This is the greatest news ever. Through this, I'll get Christ. I think the best way and hymn that summarizes was, I believe it was John Wesley. When he sang, and can it be? And what part of the song says, part of the hymn says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Do you know the next verse? Fast bound in sin and nature's night. He's recognizing the deadness of his sin. And he sees it as a shackle. But what does he say then? Thine eye diffuse a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. God's grace shone in the life of this prisoner. And the lights went on. Shackles went to pieces. And what is the response? My chains fell off. My heart was free. What is next? You don't know the hymn? Oh, it's famous. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. That's the picture. 
The amazing love that brings the light into the darkened soul, that transforms it so that it looks at the gospel and says, that's what I want because through this gospel I get Jesus. That's the bedrock of Paul's evangelism. Paul saw Christ as his greatest treasure, as the majestic delight he was. And out of that he says, there is the reason why I preach him. Because I delight in Him. And so it's time to turn the text on ourselves. And here's the first implication. We declare what we delight in. You and I praise what we worship. If you ever wonder why we tell very little to people about Jesus... It might just be that we don't delight in Him. We share the gospel because we are grieved that there are nations and people who have not heard and have the wonderful, awesome opportunity to enjoy Christ like we got to enjoy Christ. And so... We will declare what we delight in. We do this all the time. When ECU beats UNC, or vice versa, everybody with the UNC shirts, or everybody with ECU shirts, would say, did you see the game? We declare what we delight in. Second, in ours, God is supremely valuable when we share the gospel out of delight. A few, about a month or so ago, I had a birthday, and everybody gets a birthday cake in our house. We got seven people, so it kind of gets redundant, so we have more options. But suppose my wife went to Walmart and just kind of look at the discount counter and see, if, you know, with those orange stickers, see, grab a cheap cake. Slap it on the table, throw a candle on it. Well, that'll do. I mean, after all, it's your birthday. It's what you're supposed to do on birthday. You've got to give a cake. No, she didn't do just that. She actually asked me, what would you like for your birthday as a birthday cake? And after three days of deliberation, I've decided that I wanted Czech pastries. I really like Czech pastries. And so she made those. She went out of her way. Because there was delight in her. It, she delighted in doing that. It was not just a matter of simple obedience and rule. Well, it's your birthday. You're supposed to have cake. Here it is. No, it was, what would you like? I'm delighted in doing this. And the same way it's in the gospel. God is honored when we share the gospel because we delight in God. It makes us happy. God makes us so happy and so we cannot contain it. And the, the picture is of a, think of a tree. Think of a tree, a gospel tree or, or a tree, a, a Christian like a tree, who is sharing the gospel. Now, not sharing the gospel out of delight is like having a tree that has no roots. You might have some fruit here and there, but it will not last long. A strong wind will probably knock it over. 
But if, if our gospel sharing is out of our delight in Christ, then what we're looking at is a tree that has a roots sunken deep into this gospel-saturated ground. And then it's just feeding off of this amazing Christ who is so enjoyable that it just produces and oozes and overflows with fruit of joy in Christ. And so that's the picture. Third, when we share gospel, when we share the gospel out of delight in Christ, our joy becomes complete. Have you ever noticed when you delight in something, truly delight in something, that it's very difficult to keep it in? If you climb a mountain, get up on top of a hill, 700 feet or more, and you look around, and if you're by yourself, you just are thankful you have a phone because you want to take a picture so that you can show it to somebody. But if you, if you have somebody with you, you start looking around and you go, do you see that? Isn't that amazing? As we are filled with joy, we instantly are drawn to invite others to participate. We are inviting others to, to take part in our enjoying that. And in some strange way, and I think that's the way God designed it, it makes our joy more complete. C.S. Lewis put it like this in his Reflection of Psalms. I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. And so if you see something great, you always look over your shoulder and you go, did you see that? Wasn't that amazing? So as we preach the gospel we, and allowing people to hear about the wonderful joy that we have in Christ... That joy is becoming complete as we preach it. Isn't it exactly what John tells us in 1 John chapter 1? We write these things so that our joy may be what? May be complete. Fourth, it is better to share the gospel while repenting of our lack of delight in Christ than not to share the gospel at all. I understand that we are sinners. And we have often and continue and will continue until we face Christ, fight with sin. And that even though the light ought to be at the heart of why we share the gospel, there will be days, there are times, off and on, that it will not be the case. But if you are facing a situation with a situation where you find you have no delight in your heart, in Christ, and there is an opportunity to share the gospel, adding another sin of keeping quiet does not solve the problem. Rather, the solution is just simply repent. God, forgive me. Forgive me that I do not delight in you the way I should. Give me the grace to go in spite of my shortcoming, in spite of my sinful heart, and tell these people about you. Because you truly are a gracious God. And the grace you continue to show me, even as I'm praying to you right now, you desire to show that grace to those who have not heard about you. And so the proper response for a, the lightless heart 
is not silence, but repentance. Because while our sin runs deep, God's grace, what? Runs deeper still. Last. We are to spend our lives looking to Jesus. Our lives are be about looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We ought to spend our days, our mornings, bringing ourselves on the mighty hand of God, seeking Him, yearning for Him, so that we are filled with the joy of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as we are looking to Jesus, then we will be filled with that joy that He brings. Joy, namely joy of Himself. And that begins to overflow. I understand it's a battle. It's a battle against the flesh, against the world, against the devil. But we have a mighty weapon, don't we not? We have the Word of God. And we have a mighty helper, the Spirit of the living God. And most of all, we have a mighty victor who has overcome this world and who is in us. And we have the privilege to make Him who made us alive, make Him known among the nations. Let's pray. God, we are barely scratching the surface of Your greatness. And we will forever in heaven explore the depth and the riches of Your glory. It is inexhaustible. But we do pray You open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see every day just a bit more. We may be continually drawn to the throne of grace, continually drawn to, to Christ so that even while seen dimly, we will be so satisfied with Your glory in the face of Christ as He comes alive to us by the power of Your Holy Spirit through Your Word. And out of that great delight, we will speak forth, shout it from the rooftops, that You are glorious Savior. And we pray that You do work in our hearts as we heard Your Word now to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.